Father, you are indeed holy. And apart from the Lord Jesus, none of us could stand before you. None of us would have any hope of being right before you. But you are holy and you are merciful. And we rejoice together in the mercy that you have lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Father, we also confess this morning that we only have any awareness of you because you have revealed yourself. And we praise you for the way that you made yourself known to Moses and before that to the patriarchs. And most supremely, you have made yourself known to us in Christ. Lord, I pray that through your word, by the power of your spirit this morning, you would deepen our experience of you. You would make us people who live like we know the holy God. Lord, you know what each one of us individually needs. You know where we need to repent. You know what adjustments we need to make in our lives. I pray, Father, that as we experience you, as you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures, you would give us courage and strength and boldness and resolve to live like we believe. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 3. And as you turn there, I just want to briefly remind you of what we've seen in Exodus 1 and 2. So in many ways, in Exodus 1 and 2, we're being introduced to the Exodus story. It's, it's tied in with the end of Genesis, and it's setting up everything that's going to follow in the rest of the book of Exodus. And it begin, Exodus 1 and 2 begins, as we saw last week in, in verse 7 of Exodus 1, with this reminder of Genesis 1:28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and the people of Israel are being fruitful, and they're multiplying, and they're filling the land. And it ends in Exodus 2 uh, with this, uh, this statement that the Lord is remembering his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And as you, as you think about Exodus 1 and 2, there are these matching parts at beginning and end, the reminders of the book of Genesis, and then you have the king who doesn't know Joseph at the, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. And then that king dies at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And then you have these, uh, these, these difficulties that particularly uh, the people of God are facing. So you have uh, Pharaoh commanding for the children to be thrown into the Nile and, and commanding for the midwives to put these children to death. And in spite of those persecutions, the people of Israel are, are bearing children. And they're allowing the male children to live. And I think that there's a sense in which that in Exodus 1 is matched by uh, the birth of Moses' children near the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. And what's interesting to me about this is that what seems to be at the center of Exodus 1 and 2 is the rejection of Moses. You know, right before that, uh, he's, he's delivered by the daughter of Pharaoh. And right after that, he meets his wife Zipporah. And there in the middle of those chapters, Exodus 1 and 2, 
is Moses presenting himself as though he's going to be the deliverer of his people. And then they ask the question, who made you ruler and judge over us? And with that in mind, I want to draw your attention to what Stephen highlights in Acts chapter 7. And he says, beginning in verse 17, you don't have to turn there, I can read this to you. You're welcome to follow along if you'd like. Acts 7, 17, Peter, uh, Luke presents Stephen saying, As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, I think he's referring to the way that in Genesis 15, uh, God made this promise to Abraham that his descendants would be uh, servants in a land not their own, and then after a period of time, the Lord would bring them out. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And here, Stephen seems to be referencing Exodus 1, 7. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And we, we know about that from Exodus chapter 1. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And so you can understand how Moses might be thinking, surely the people will know that I am going to be used of the Lord to bring them out of Egypt. And this is exactly what Luke presents Peter going on to say in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And it's interesting, in Exodus 1, we only read about one son, but Luke presents uh, Stephen tell us, telling us about two sons, and that reminds us of another figure who was narrated right before this in Acts 7, who was rejected by his brothers, and then in a foreign land, he had two sons. And of course, I'm talking about Joseph having two sons in exile. So there, there are many similarities between the rejection of Joseph and now the rejection of Moses. And as you work through the rest of Acts chapter 7, what, what Luke presents uh, Stephen highlighting is that this is like a preview of the rejection of the Lord Jesus. So Israel rejected Joseph, and then Israel rejected Moses, and then they rejected the Lord Jesus. Uh, going back here to Acts 7, verse 30, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. That's the passage that we're about to look at. And, and in the New Testament there, we're given information that we don't have in the Old Testament, which is that Moses was 40 years old when he tried to intervene. And then he's 80 years old when he sees the Lord in the burning bush. And I would just invite you to reflect on what this indicates about Moses. I suspect, according to what Acts 7 says, 
that as, as Moses is 40 years old, it's as though he's in the prime of his life. He's at the height of his physical and intellectual powers. He's in the court of Pharaoh. He has all of this influence in Egypt. And so from a worldly perspective, it looks like now's the time. And this is the guy. And they reject him. And he goes out into the wilderness and he spends 40 years herding sheep in the wilderness. And we're not told what those 40 years were like. I mean, it, it could have been that Moses spent a good portion of that time dejected. And, and it could have been that, that he was maybe bitter. Here I am out here herding sheep. I, I had all that learning. I had, had all that training. I had, I had that opportunity to liberate those people. And they rejected me. Or perhaps, and maybe, maybe there was some of both of this, or perhaps he gets out there in the wilderness and he communes with the Lord and he reflects on God's promises and he walks with God and he enjoys the beauty of creation. We're not told anything that went on with Moses. But now, here in, in Exodus chapter 3, the man is 80 years old. By any, by any standard, he's an old man. And he's no longer... 40 and young and strong and capable. Now he's, at least to some degree, old and probably weaker and beaten down by the circumstances. And we read here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And if we think about this in light of earlier uh, statements in the Bible, we have... Abel keeping a flock in Genesis 4. And then we have Joseph shepherding a flock in Genesis 37. So I think the wording of Exodus 3.1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, it's inviting us to align Moses with figures like Joseph and Abel. Figures who were also, in a way, rejected and persecuted. You remember Cain murdered Abel. And Joseph's brothers, shortly after that passage, rejected him. And now here's Moses, this rejected figure. And I, and I think that just reflecting on these realities gives us an opportunity to apply the text to us, to ourselves, to our own lives, because this is the way the Lord works. The Lord doesn't choose according to worldly standards. The Lord doesn't act in worldly ways. The Lord doesn't use Moses at the height of his physical and intellectual capacity, at the height of his influence over the land of Egypt. The Lord chooses to send Moses out for 40 years into the wilderness where he becomes a shepherd. And you'll remember from the Genesis, from the Genesis narrative that shepherds were loathsome to the Egyptians. So it's not when Moses is an Egyptian prince that he's sent into the court of Pharaoh it's after Moses has become a loathsome shepherd that he's going to be sent into the court of Pharaoh. And it's not when Moses is at the height of his powers in worldly terms that he's going to be used. It's when, by, by our way of thinking, Moses is in decline that he's going to be used powerfully of the Lord to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And, and it's not as someone who has never known rejection that Moses is going to, be re going to be used of the Lord to deliver his people. All across the Bible, 
there's a consistent and strong theme of those whom God uses having been rejected and opposed and persecuted. And that theme comes to its fullest expression in the Lord Jesus, the King of Israel who was rejected by his own people and crucified by them. And the Lord Jesus said to his followers in John 15, he said, if they receive me, they will receive you. But if they hated me, they will hate you also. We, we need to embrace this. We need to embrace the idea that identifying with the Lord Jesus is going to lead to the world rejecting us. And we need to look at that with eyes of hope because, because those who are rejected by... Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So I don't know how this is going to manifest in, in your life, but... There are ways in which all of us are going to need to be ready to bear the reproach of Christ. So here in Exodus 3, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. It's, it's also interesting to compare this with Jacob. You know, Jacob went and became a shepherd. But Jacob, in contrast with Moses, developed his own flocks and became wealthy in his own right. And Moses, by contrast continues to keep the flock of, that belongs to his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, Horeb is referred to elsewhere as Mount Sinai. And so Moses has come to this place here in Exodus chapter 3 where the people of Israel, we'll see later in the chapter, where the people of Israel will meet with God in Exodus 19, when the Lord comes down on the mountain. And already here, this place is referred to as the mountain of God. So it's, it's almost as though this particular mountain is like a point of connection between heaven and earth, and the Lord is, is present here in a way that he's not present in other, in other places. And then in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The first thing that I, that I want to observe here is that uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is, is manifesting himself in the form of this angel. And, and I think what, what we're being shown here is that not even Moses can, can withstand and, and experience the full disclosure of God himself. So God manifests himself to Moses as an angel. It, it seems that in some sense this angel represents God's person to Moses, but the Lord is still distant and, and trans transcendent. So I, I, I take this to mean that Yahweh is, is appearing to, the Mo to Moses, not himself directly, but this angel who represents the Lord is appearing to Moses. And so we read here that Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so because it's not being consumed, and because he, Moses knows how things burn, he's been, he's been camped uh, with, the, with the flocks, you know, for 40 years. He knows how things are consumed. He knows how quickly bushes are consumed by flames. And this one is not being consumed. And so Verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush 
is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And, and just a word here about uh, the, 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 the necessity for him to re- remove his sandals. Um, where God is, that's where you have fullness of life. And anything connected with death is going to result in uncleanness. In, in, in the Bible's uh, worldview, in the, in the worldview reflected in the scriptures, before sin, there is no death in the world. Because Adam sins... Death results, and when people come into contact with things that have to do with death, they are thereby rendered unclean. And if, if anything unclean comes into contact with God's holiness, death results. And so Moses has been tromping around with sheep, and you know, if, if you've been around animals, like we have a dog, and we put him out in the yard, and uh, he does his business, and we don't scoop it up, and so we might have to take our shoes off when we come into the house. Well, those things that, that result from the bodily processes, those things are connected with, uh, they're, they're no longer in vital connection with the life of the animal, and therefore they're connected with death. And so because Moses has been following these animals around, he's been exposed to all these things, so his sandals have to be removed because he's on holy ground. And, and he's in danger. He's in danger because if he comes into contact with God in his holiness, he will die. And so he's told to remove his sandals because the ground, the place where he is standing is holy. And then in verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father. And this is interesting because it's not the God of your fathers, plural. It's the God of Moses' father in particular. This seems to suggest that as Moses grew up, he continued to be aware of who his, his not Egyptian, but his Hebrew father was. And I, I suspect that there was an ongoing relationship between Moses and his mother and his father. And this resulted in Moses knowing who his people were and in him, as we saw last week, identifying with the Hebrews as his brothers rather than identifying with the Egyptians. And so the Lord identifies himself I am the God of your father, his Hebrew father, not his Egyptian adoptive father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, all those things that I was saying just a moment ago about life and about the presence of God connoting life, they're relevant here for what the Lord says to Moses, and they're relevant also for the way that Jesus quoted that passage in the New Testament. This is the line that uh, Jesus quotes when, when he's answering the Pharisees about resurrection. Now, so I'd like for you to, to turn to Matthew 22 just briefly and, and consider with me what's going on there. And I think that this will also shed light on what's happening in the book of, of uh, Exodus. So in Matthew 22, the, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection. They don't believe that the human body is going to be raised from the dead. They do believe in things like Sheol, which is the idea that after you die, your spirit or your soul is going to continue in some kind of life. It'll just be a disembodied life. 
The Sadducees believe in Sheol, so they don't believe that there's this end altogether. They just reject the bodily part of it. So when Jesus answers them, if you look down at verse 32, verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I think often people read this and they think uh, Jesus is saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive in the presence of God. And he's the God of the living in that sense. I would suggest to you that the Sadducees would have no problem with that. The Sadducees would be like, well, of course. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. I think what the, 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 the point that Jesus is making has to do with the way that in every one of these cases, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you had a barren woman who was able to give birth. With all three of these guys, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we read that Sarah was barren, we read that Rebecca was barren, and we read that Rachel was barren. So all three of these guys had barren lives, barren wives. And in that world, if you have a barren wife, it means that your line of descent is over, death. Death to your line of descent. So for that dead womb to come to life and to give birth to a child, this is like resurrection from the dead. And, and you can see this in 1 Samuel 2, 5, and 6, where uh, in, in 1 Samuel 2, 5, he makes the barren woman give birth. And then in the very next verse, it says he kills and brings to life. You can also see it in Romans 4, 17 through 19, where Paul speaks of how, how uh, Abraham did not waver in faith when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, but he believed God who, who brings life out of death. And, and Isaac is born. So there's a connection in the Bible between barren women giving birth and bodily resurrection from the dead. That's the connection I think that Jesus is drawing attention to. And this is why, I think, he says, he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because their wives gave birth, and it points to resurrection. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What does this have to do with the book of Exodus? Well, with the people of Israel having descended into Egypt... It's as though they've gone into the unclean realm of the dead. And, and it's almost as though their hopes are cut off altogether. And God is saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God who gave life to Sarah's dead womb. And the God of Isaac, the God who gave life to Rebekah's dead womb. And the God of Jacob, the God who gave life to Rachel's dead womb. That's who I am. I'm the God who gives life from the dead. And what, what's about to happen through the Exodus is this nation is, is practically going to be resurrected from the dead as God brings them out of Egypt and brings them into the land of promise, which is like a clean realm of life. So the Lord announces himself in Exodus 3:6, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What we see here is that the fear of God is a 
a good response. It's a good response of worship when we encounter the holy God. So as, as a second kind of point of application here, let me urge you to respond to God's revelation of himself by fearing him. This is a good and right response that we see in Moses. God reveals himself to us. Moses responds by hiding his face, being afraid to look at God. We want to cultivate in ourselves the fear of God. It's also interesting to observe again that God does not appear to Moses in the court of Pharaoh, but in the wilderness of Sinai. And as we, as we think about this, what we want to remind ourselves is that God has his purposes and God has his own schedule that he's working on. God is on his own timetable. And it might make sense to us for him to work at a certain time and he might have an entirely different agenda on which he is operating and in accordance to which he is going to do his work. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This should remind us of chapter 2 in verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then verse uh, 7 of chapter 3 continues. I know their sufferings. And again, this is the end of chapter 2. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. And God says here, I know their sufferings. As we experience the reproach of Christ, as perhaps we experience the reproach of the world, we want to we be those people who know God and for whom it is enough that God knows our sufferings. God knows our sufferings. He continues in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is a, a kind of metaphorical way to describe the land of promise. And, and what this communicates, a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey, this communicate. this is just a, a, it's a part for whole way of communicating everything that God has promised. If, 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 if he were to elaborate, I think the Lord would say something like this. I'm going to take them back into the realm of Eden. I'm going to bring them into the place where life abounds, where there is no death, where there is no sin. I'm going to bring them to the place where they will experience my direct presence, where all of the desires that I created in them will be satisfied as they experience me and my goodness lavished on the world that I made. And, and I think that this this very compressed expression, a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey, is intended to evoke everything that God has promised. The idea of it flowing with milk and honey points to the way that, that the, the rains are going to fall, so the pasturage will be rich, so the cows and the goats from which they get milk will be healthy, so that there will be abundance of food provided for them. There will be plenty of, of flowers and plants for the bees to fertilize and as a result there will be an abundance of honey in this good land. It's pointing to God's presence and God's blessing on God's land where God's people 
enjoy God himself. So the Lord says, I've come down to deliver them, to bring them up. And then he continues to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen, notice uh, verse 7, I have surely seen, and then their cry, and now here again in verse 9, the cry, and he's seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if the Lord had said this to Moses when Moses was 40, and Acts 7, verse 25, tells us that Moses was thinking that his kinsmen would understand that the Lord... I think Moses would say, naturally, I'm the guy. But through the way that the Lord has worked in Moses' life, through the way that Moses has been rejected, through the way that Moses has become, in a way, a nobody, nowhere. He doesn't even have his own flock to tend. Now... Moses' response here is, verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And I think that this is where the Lord wants us. I think the Lord wants us to be people who understand John 15 when Jesus says to his followers, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, who am I that the Lord would use me to share the gospel with a neighbor? Who am I that the Lord might use me to build up the church? Who am I? I I submit to you, you are exactly where the Lord wants you to be. And he wants you to hear the next words of this passage where the Lord says in verse 12, but I will be with you. I will be with you. That's the point. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the Lord is saying to Moses, you're going to have to believe me. Because the sign is only going to come to pass after you've brought the people out. This is exactly where the Lord has us too, isn't it? These promises have been made and we have to believe. We have to believe that he's going to be with us. We have to believe that he is going to do what we can't do. Because we we can argue no one into the kingdom of God. There, there There is nothing that we can do in our power that will cause someone to experience regeneration. Being made alive out of their deadness in trespasses and sins. We cannot accomplish that. It is only if the Spirit of God gives life as we proclaim the truth of the scriptures. So we want to hear these words in verse 12. But I will be with you. And these are words that are affirmed as Jesus leaves his disciples in Matthew 28, when he says to them, I am with you always to the end of the age. And they're words that are affirmed by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, when he says... Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Which is just another way for him to say, I will be with you. I will be with you. If you're struggling with with greed or or a, a 
a lack of contentment in your life, this is what you need to meditate on. The Lord has said, I will be with you. And that implies everything that you desire will be satisfied in the Lord. Everything that you need will be provided by the Lord. And the most important thing for you to experience, what you were made to experience, is the presence of God. And really the only thing that will satisfy us as human beings. The only thing that will, that will quench the thirst that we have. The hunger, the yearning that we feel. The only thing for, sufficient for that is the Lord himself. You try to satisfy that in money, it will sprout wings and fly away. Or you'll be that, that sad person in Ecclesiastes 6 to whom the Lord has given wealth, but he has not given him the power to enjoy it. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible way to live. Or you try to satisfy that, that hunger and yearning in some person or some relationship, and what you'll find is that you destroy that relationship because you're trying to put too much on it and you're investing too many hopes in it, things it wasn't meant, it wasn't created to give you. The Lord will steadfastly ensure that any idol that you put in his place will fail you. The only thing the Lord intends for you to have that will satisfy your longing and quench your thirst and, 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 and meet your needs and fill your belly is himself. God promises what we were made to enjoy, a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. And God with us answers the greatest need that we have. Verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I think that when they say, what is his name, I don't think this reflects a lack of awareness of the name of Yahweh. I think that they're, they're aware that previous uh, generations of the faithful have been referring to the Lord as Yahweh. I think they're, they're asking something like, what is the character of this God? How, how are we to know this God? What is his name in that sense? And... God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And, and the expression here, he, he takes the to be verb, and, and it could be rendered in different ways. You could render this, I will be who I will be. You, you've got a footnote on the text in the ESV that, that gives you that in, in the lower margin. Um, some people have proposed that this could be translated something like, I cause to be what I will cause to be in a, as if the Lord is saying, I'm the creator and I cause everything that is. But, but if we take it this way, I am who I am, it really gets at the way, the, the ground of all being, to speak in philosophical terms, is the Lord himself. Everything that is, is because of who he is. And he is who he has determined himself to be. He's the, he's the root and the ground of everything that is. He's the creator. And he's the one who, in Hebrews 1, sustains all things by the word of his power. Everything depends upon the identity of this God. God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. So he doesn't have a name like Osiris or Amun or Ray. And, and it's not the case that if you, if you know his name and you know some formula, you can somehow constrain him to act in the way you want him to act or gain some influence over him because you're now in the know and you know his name. His name is asserting you don't have any control over me. I am who I am. It's as though his, his name is resisting any attempt to put him in some box. He is who he is. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. And then in the ESV, they render this, the Lord. But it's as though that, that first person singular rendering of the to be verb, I am, is now being put into the third person singular, he is. So the name Yahweh, which is represented here by the phrase the Lord with those small caps, that's like our third person singular form of this statement, I am, he is. It's almost as though Israel is given a name for the Lord that just asserts he is when they say Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. That expression, I have observed you, picks up on Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25, where, uh, where it was, the Lord says, well, it, it's, it's uh, Joseph saying, the Lord will surely visit you. And, and you get the same language here. It's as though the Lord is saying, this word visit can be translated observe or visit or even appoint. But here they translate it observe, but it's the same term as though the Lord is saying, I, I am surely visiting you. And, and he knows what has been done to them in Egypt there at the end of verse 16. So again, there's, there, there are promises made at the end of Genesis that are being fulfilled here in the, in the process of the outworking of the Exodus. And then the Lord says in verse 17, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the Lord asserts to Moses in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. As the narrative proceeds, we'll see when we're together next time that Moses has some doubts about whether the people are going to listen to him. But it's the Lord's word that's going to prevail. The Lord is saying, they will listen to your voice. And, and we get the same kinds of assurances when we're told in the New Testament that Jesus has redeemed for himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They will listen to your voice because he's chosen them, the word is going to go to them, and they will believe. And, and in some ways, we're in the place of Moses. It's our responsibility to go and speak the words. And it's the Lord's responsibility to make it so that they listen. Verse 18, they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. 
I alluded to this when we looked at the midwives, and the midwives uh, did not, in my view, they did not tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to Pharaoh, and they did that as an outworking of their fear of God. Now the Lord himself is sending Moses and the elders to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is not going to receive the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Lord's intention is to bring them out permanently for a lot longer than three days, forever. And they're not just coming out to sacrifice to him and then return to Egypt. They're going to come out to serve him forever, to be his people, and they will be, uh, he will be their God. So uh, I think we see the Lord acting in a way here that is similar to the way that the midwives and Rahab and Samuel and other figures across the Old Testament act. And there's a warning here. The warning is, you don't want to side with the enemies of God. If you side with the enemies of God, you will experience what's described in Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. With the pure, he shows himself to be pure. With the merciful, he shows himself to be merciful. But with the crooked, he makes himself seem tortuous. If you side with the enemies of God, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you're resisting the Lord, you don't want to submit to the Lord Jesus, you are siding with the enemies of God and the Lord will deal with you the way that he deals with Pharaoh. And, and the only way to avoid being dealt with that way is to repent of your sins and to trust in the Lord and to identify with him and his people. And we would urge you to do that. We would urge you to place your hope in the Lord, to, to look to Christ in whom the Lord has accomplished the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt, and to identify with the people of God. The Lord continues in verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So they're to go in with this message, let us go three days in. Now the Lord is saying, I know what's going to happen. He's not going to let you go. And so the Lord is essentially saying, I'm going to have to bring these plagues on, on Pharaoh. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So the Lord is going to humble Egypt, and Egypt is going to enrich his people, and we'll see the way that this will work out in the book of, of Exodus as we continue. As an application of this passage, verses 13 through 22, we should really fix on God's name, God's promise, and God's purpose. We, we know God because he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. That's our only access to him. He has freely revealed the fullness of who he is and given us everything that we need in the scriptures to know him and to understand what he has promised and how he is pursuing his purposes. And, and what we want to do is we want to respond to this with everything that we are. We, we want to respond to God's revelation of his character and identity in worship. We want to respond to God's revelation of his promise by fixing our hope on the grace that
that will be given to us when, when all is revealed. And we want to join with the people of God in pursuing the purposes of God along the lines of the way the author of Hebrews describes Moses. The author of Hebrews says this about Moses in verses 20, Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure, pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ being rejected, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking beyond the land of Canaan to the new heavens and new earth, where all the promises of God will be fulfilled. And if we're to pursue the purposes of God, if, if we're to, to uh, live like people who know the name of God, we have to believe the promises of God. And we have to live to to advance those purposes of God. This is why we're here at this church. This is why we're about to take communion together. This is why we're engaged on this, this uh, fall evangelistic effort together. This is why we're, we're urging you to identify someone in your life, to be, to be intentional, to pray for this person, and then to, to pursue the con conversation with them. That a conversation that could result in you bearing the reproach of Christ. But it's worth it. It's worth it to cross that line, to go there, and to initiate a conversation about the gospel. It's worth it to keep reaching out to them and telling you, them that you care about them, you're concerned for them, you want them to come and hear the gospel. You want them to come and experience the revelation of God's name in the scriptures. It's our responsibility indiscriminately to sow the seed. It's God's responsibility to make people hear, to give people life. And we pray that he'll do it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would so work in our hearts that we're prepared to be perhaps slain like Abel or rejected like Joseph and Moses we're prepared to take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus as he called his people to do. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of this, you would make us people who experience your nearness as our good. People who experience your presence with us, blessing everything that we do, even in affliction, and giving us joy and satisfaction even as we suffer and Lord we pray that you would make us people who know who you are people who know that you are the God who says of himself I am who I am Lord we ask that you would prompt us to respond to you with worship, summon forth from us the praise that you deserve. And we pray that you would give us the, the joy of walking with you in obedience and proclaiming the good news. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves to you, praying that you'd bless our efforts to believe your promises and live in accordance with your purposes. In Christ's name, amen.